1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 11 verses. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin the message this evening, I want to just explain that I'll be taking a little different perspective instead of just going and diving into the actual situations within the church. I thought, first of all, it would be good for us to kind of back up and to view the bigger picture and to look at where this city of Corinth was located, and a little bit about its history, uh, which led it to be a city that was conducive to all sorts of evils, and then how that infiltrated into the believing community as well. In particular, as you notice as we were singing, Paul talks about lawsuits and the fact that they should not be uh, done in civil courts, if at all possible, especially uh, between members in the church. And then he reminds us in verses 9 through 11 of the fact that we are holy and pure because of who we are in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to begin with giving you a little more uh, factual information to help understand a little bit about the city itself, the city of Corinth. And then I have a couple of points, I think, that are broader 
that covers both of those situations. So the city of Corinth was one of the greatest trading and commercial centers of the ancient world. The city itself was located on a small four-mile stretch of land that connected the north and the south of Greece. Not only did all of the trade from the north to the south have to pass through the city of Corinth, but the greater part of the east-to-west trade of the Mediterranean world chose to pass through Corinth in order to bypass Cape Malaya, which was the most treacherous waters of the Mediterranean. So as a result, the markets of Corinth were visited by tradesmen of every nation within the civilized world at that time. And, as is often the case, increased wealth and luxury led to a lifestyle that quickly degraded into greed and immorality. The constant influx and flow of traders and sailors brought an overflowing cesspool of sins and vices and acts of debauchery. There was, for example, the temple of Aphrodite, which housed over a thousand prostitutes actively conducting their trade there in the city of Corinth. Now, during the time of Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians, the permanent citizens were composed of a wide variety, a wide mixture of people. There were Roman soldiers, merchants, Jews, Phoenicians, and many other from the East. So this wide variety of backgrounds was also then reflected in the makeup of the church community itself. Paul had helped to establish it when he stayed there. He stayed there for over 18 months. It also helps explain then the rapid disintegration of morality and how the believers were really struggling with that temptation to revert back to old patterns of thinking and behaving. And it was especially easy, easy since Paul was no longer there to give them the truth. So Paul is writing to a church that was troubled, as we already have noted, with division with abuse of the sacraments, with all sorts of disorderly conduct, bickering, and they were taking advantage of one another. In fact, we see that in verses 1 through 8. Paul is deeply concerned about lawsuits which turned over these issues into the hands of non-Christian authorities people were turning to the civil law places in order to settle their disputes. And these were disputes within the body of Christ. So think about that for just a few moments. The pagan neighbors to whom they were trying to witness were the same people who sat and served on the juries and witnessed their disagreements and their disputes within the church. 
Often, their neighbors would witness that unnecessary bickering and complaining and arguing. So they most likely thought, why would I want to be part of a community like that? One author writes, while pointing out the evil of the world all around them, the church members in Corinth were envious of each other. They were critical of the weaknesses of their fellow believers. And they were even intent on taking advantage of one another. So instead of practicing what they preached, which was selflessness, forgiveness, and love, they were instead filled with greed and hatred and retaliation. That's what Paul is speaking of when he says in verses 7 and 8, to have lawsuits at all with unbelievers, or sorry, with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It is obvious he is very concerned about that witness that they are giving within the community. In fact, it was important because of the makeup and, and the lack of morality that the Christians stand strong for their beliefs, and they were not. Paul is saying, those who share in Christ's redemption, those who have experienced the cleansing of his atoning blood and his forgiveness in the act of redemption, should strive to reflect a different perspective that is, to give a different kind of witness than those who were immersed in the materialistic, independent, selfish perspective of the world around them. Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10 to make a list of different evils which could easily be found and perhaps even characterized the city of Corinth. There was sexual immorality, there were adulterers, there was homosexuality that was practiced, there were greedy people taking advantage of others, there were swindlers, idolaters, there was prostitution, there were thieves, and there were slanderers. Now I'm sure he didn't give an all-comprehensive listing either. But it gives us just a little idea of the depth of the perversity. But interestingly, in verse 11, he says, And such were, were some of you. In other words, that was your old life. The word that's used in the Greek shows a strong contrast between two different opinions or ideas. He's saying, they were this way, that was your old lifestyle, but now, he goes on to say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you've changed. You've become a new creation because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
And basically what he was saying as he's writing to these fellow believers is it should be obvious. The difference between your old lifestyle, which is reflected in the city of Corinth, should be drastically different because of who you are in Jesus Christ. Their relationship in Jesus Christ makes that difference. He goes on to say, you were washed. In many ways, there's the imagery is that of baptism, which of course we were able uh, to witness and be a part of this morning. The washing of sins and the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's what differentiates a believer from an unbeliever. And as we witness that sacrament of baptism, each and every time we have an affirmation and a confirmation of God's saving grace through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now in our text this evening, as I indicated earlier, I'm going to point out a couple of points, I think, that Paul, these are broader general points that Paul is trying to bring out in his letter, specifically in these first 11 verses. First of all, he shows the depth and the pervasiveness of human sin, both in the people's desire to go to court to sue one another, perhaps to make money, but also in that list of sins that obviously were beginning to surface within the church itself. So we see the depth and pervasiveness of human sin. And second, believers, this is what he, he is saying to them, those who are united in Christ should pursue the things of Christ. So let's begin and look at the depth and the pervasiveness of human sin. We heard about that this morning as well in the message. Human beings are drawn toward evil. Human beings by nature look at things from a greedy, selfish, individualistic perspective. They struggle with pride. That's the natural tendency. And in our sinfulness, we offend God. Because God is holy and he is just. In fact, God himself, his being, he embodies truth and righteousness and wholesomeness. That's why we need to be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then live a relationship that reflects that. We truly believe Christ alone is our redemption. And we can see a pointing ahead to that fact that going all the way back to the Old Testament, there, there is that tendency towards sin and the need for a Savior. For example, immediately after the flood, Noah and his family who were rescued built an altar and they sacrificed and they worshiped God. We read in verse 21, Genesis 8, verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, <clears throat> the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, 
but this part in particular, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. David writes in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. But they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Paul highlights it as well in Romans 3, verse 22 through 24, which may be familiar to you. He speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe. And then he says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when we look at verses 1 through 8, Paul is reminding the believers that the disputes that they have should be settled within the church. When arguments and disagreements occur uh, within our earthly families, we usually settle them within the family. We are Christians, and as part of the body of Christ or the family of God, we are to be able to approach one another in love and to settle our disagreements not to go to outside authorities. Now, it was interesting in my research. First of all, <clears throat> there were a few pastors that really wanted to preach on this. Uh, as I was looking for resources, uh, they would skip this section, perhaps because uh, talking about suing and that was not something they wanted to address. But as I did my research, I discovered that there's over one million lawyers in the United States. And as you and I know, most of the lawsuits involve money, are centered upon money. And the desire is not to work toward healing relationships. It's not to put others first. One author writes, a Christian's primary concern should be that his attitude toward a fellow believer mirrors the attitude of Jesus Christ. In Corinth, Paul says that it was better to humble oneself, even if it involves suffering or sacrifice, rather than to take another brother or sister in Christ to the court. So we see the depth and the pervasiveness of human sin resides at the core of this desire. That's what causes the lawsuits to involve money and possessions and personal gain. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So at the core is that natural human tendency to pursue what is evil. Paul's second point is that believers who are united in Christ should then pursue a Christ-like 
attitude and lifestyle. After he gives that long list of sins in verses 9 and 10, he ends by saying in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. So what he is saying is that you need to be different. There should be an observable difference between a person who is in Christ and a person who is of the world and has no desire to know Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that works sanctification within the life of the believer. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, The God of all grace has given to his people all of the perfections of heaven to be their heritage forever. And the down payment of his Holy Spirit is to them the blessed token that all things are theirs. The Spirit's work of comfort and sanctification is a part of heaven's covenant blessings. And possessing the down payment of the Spirit, we have received a possession that is from heaven. I thought that was a beautiful way of viewing it. And that's Paul's conviction as well, that a Christian is to be set apart from the world because of the fact that he or she has been washed through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and is daily being sanctified to become more and more like Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. Another way of looking at it is if there is no difference between a believer and those who are unbelievers, we are then not following Christ. We are not being conformed into his nature. Theologian John MacArthur writes, a transformed life should produce transformed living. Paul is saying very strongly that it was unacceptable that some believers were behaving like those outside of the kingdom. They were acting like their former selves. They were not saved for that, but they were saved from that. So Paul's message to these believers in the town or the city of Corinth is something that you and I can say is equally true for us today. We need to demonstrate as believers a life that is glorifying to God. We need to have a new nature, one that resembles that of Christ so that our behaviors are also Christ-like. Because in him we are given a new nature, a new life. We can and we must live that new life. Sin's domination is broken. And through Christ it's replaced by a life characterized by an ongoing desire to be sanctified and to be holy. 
we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that should be obvious. Is that true? Do other people see Christ in us? Let's join together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, it's easy for us to identify all of the sins and the shortcomings of the people in Corinth. But we know that that temptation is equally relevant for us today. That we are also by nature those who seek gain, those who make money more important than it should be, those who are willing to go in directions that we know are wrong. And Lord, as we read this passage and as we are reminded that we who are bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ are to be true examples so that others would see Christ in us. May that give to us a passion because we know what truly is important as we share the message of, of salvation with others. That is the greatest gift that we could give to anyone, not money, not possessions, not power or fame, but what Christ has given and provided through the shedding of his blood and through his resurrection. Lord, there are so many who do not know Christ as their Lord. Help us through our words, but also through our actions to show to them a little bit of who Christ is as we seek to reflect and to be conformed into who he is. And as we serve you in Jesus' name, amen.